so my sister died um, three years ago in an accident overnight. And um, somebody sent me um, a card and in the card was a phrase that I believe is attributed to, um, often wrongly attributed to Alice in Wonderland, in Wonderland C.S. Lewis. Um, and it's when you cannot look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. And that really touched me. And um, my sister was Captain Dara Fitzpatrick and she was uh, one of the four crew of Rescue 116. And they lost their lives on March 14, 2017. And it was actually Dara's really good friend, Sarah Hegarty from Waterford. And she sent me this in a card. And I think it was the fact that it came from Sarah and that it was such a beautiful idea that if you cannot look on the bright side, which of course you can't in the face of such loss, if you cannot look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. Hi, Cormac Vanny here, owner of Hip Psychology, and I'd like to welcome you all to the Hip Psychology Mastering Your Craft podcast. We are a performance psychology company and we work across three main areas, sport, education and business. To find out more about what we do, we can be followed on Twitter at Hip Psychology, that's H-I-P, Psychology, or our website is www.hippsychology.com. Today's guest on the Mastering Your Craft podcast is renowned psychologist Neve Fitzpatrick. This was a podcast I enjoyed immensely learned a ton from and pretty much didn't want it to end. Such was the quality of conversation and ideas generated from Neve. In the podcast, we cover Neve's career in psychology, what her day-to-day work looks like, and also how she initially got into psychology, where we delve further into the idea of finding our why. Neve shares her experiences and expertise within the field including an All-Ireland success way back in 1996 as part of the backroom team carrying out the role of sports psychologist with the Wexford Hurlers. She was involved in three Olympic cycles, supporting Irish athletes on their pursuit of Olympic success. Neve also served as Agony Aunt for Today FM. We covered a range of topics, including... Uh, social media and its influence with society and well-being. We look at basics that people can be doing to take care of their mental health. She also gives tips for people who may have family members or close friends struggling with their mental health. Neve shares her own experiences of loss, including that of the death of her sister, Captain Dara Fitzpatrick. This was an open and honest podcast one that I thoroughly enjoyed and I'm sure all our listeners today will get immense benefit from it. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Neve Fitzpatrick to the Mastering Your Craft podcast. Neve Fitzpatrick, psychologist, thanks so much for uh, coming on, Neve. I'm really looking forward to um, this podcast and what it's going to bring. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me on. It's Always lovely to be asked to do any kind of conversation around the mental health piece. Um, no, I've, um, 
Uh, no, I, from following your work quite closely on Twitter and different, seeing different articles and um, videos on YouTube and stuff like that, I've always been a fan. So I'm delighted that our listeners are going to get to share, uh, or you're going to get to share with our listeners your insights and experiences. So. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited about what we're going to uncover. So, Neve, why psychology? How did you get into the field? Well, actually, I never wanted to do psychology. I wanted to do law. So I come from a family where there's a lot in the legal field. And I suppose, like a lot of people, I wanted to follow the paths that those before me had been in. We sort of, maybe I think we... We follow what we know and so I had this idea of doing law maybe I think it was family law and I missed the points I didn't <laughs> I didn't get enough points in my leaving search uh, and I didn't miss them by much now so I thought well you know maybe I can do this it's not that I'm stupid or anything you know I probably can do this I just didn't do so well in the leaving search piece and I decided to go into college to do an arts degree in UCD and to go in the back way into law but in UCD, you had to pick three subjects. This is way back in 1986. I didn't believe in 1986. I would have started in college in October, September, October 86. Long time ago. And you had to pick three subjects for your arts degree. And I picked English because I absolutely love language and writing and reading and books and all of that thing. Love it. And I picked psychology because it just, I was fascinated with people. It just interested me. And then I picked philosophy because I was told it was an easy third subject. And then I just fell in love with the psychology completely, utterly, wholly, and totally fell in love with the psychology. And it felt like this was what I was here to do. This is what I was supposed to do. And I never, from the first, maybe if I started college in October 1986, it might have been November, December, certainly by Christmas of that year, I never had another thought of law. And I, at the end of first year, I managed to get enough sort of grades and do the grades well enough to be offered um, what was called a pure psychology degree. So I managed to drop the English and the philosophy and I continued fully on with psychology and studied only that for the last few years of my bachelor's. And I just completely loved it. And then went on to do a master's in clinical psychology and a master's in sports psychology and, and it, that's the best way I can put it is it just feels like that's what I'm supposed to be here to do. And what is it about psychology that has sort of gripped you? It's the it's just the look at people it's the look at what they do how they do it why they do it what they think how they think why they think it um what they feel, how they feel, why they feel it. It's, it just intrigues me. It's, it's fascinating, the, the observing, the interacting with people and understanding the processes that go to, you know, creating our life, our emotional life and our behavioral life. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and as a psychologist now for almost, it will be 30 years next year, it's a privilege when I have a client who sits in front of me and they let me into that world of theirs and I get to hear their thoughts, their feelings, their emotional journey through life. It's a complete privilege. And so maybe what started off as an interest way back then and just a curiosity probably has 
developed over the years into something much deeper. So, so when I was in my teenage years, we were brought up on a farm. I'm going to move a little bit now to maybe a bit of personal stuff. But so we grew up on a farm, and when you grow up on a farm, there's usually some ponies somewhere around the around the farm, and there was in our household. And at some stage, somebody you know threw us up on a Connemara pony and said, "Ride that pony," you know down the yard or whatever. And over years, as children, as and my siblings, we, we began eventually to compete in show jumping and eventing and just equestrian events. And I used to be really good. Well, she says modestly, I used to be fairly good, reasonably good in the initial stages of the competition. And I would be quite consistent. And then we'd get to the final and the manager, it might have been 14, 15, and the show jumping manager would look at me and say, Neil, you're last person on the team now. I need a good, solid, fast, clear round from you. And my head just disintegrated. I, I, I just heard pressure. This teenage girl just thought, oh, my God, 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 oh, my God. And I tensed, and the pony tensed. And we went in, and we would almost knock every fence in the ring. And so I continued on in the equestrian sport, throughout my teenage years but then I gave up and I thought you know I'm just rubbish at this I, you know I'm no good at this and then when I got into psychology as well as looking at the general public I also got a chance to look at the sporting public and the, or the sporting sort of phase and, and, and space and I realized and understood that there was a whole profession there devoted to teaching people how to prepare mentally for sports competition and I thought, oh my gosh, I wasn't completely useless. I was just missing a big chunk of the skills needed for sports performance. And that was the mental skills. How do you, how do you, you know, handle nerves? How do you focus your mind? How do you build your confidence? How do you bounce back after mistakes? And so I suppose the psychology piece for me was, you know, a bit around the interest and the curiosity in people. And then added to that was this, light bulb moment around the sports psychology field and the performance psychology field and the two together just made it overwhelmingly attractive to me I suppose and still is. Yeah um, there's an interesting point there that I um, do a lot of work in schools and I was actually asked to speak at a, an A-level awards so that's it's a leading sort of equivalent of what you, um, what, what you, in the south and um, uh, the overarching message delivered at, in, at that ceremony was do what you love, uncover what you love, what you enjoy, what you're good at, what gives you fulfillment and satisfaction, and, and go with it. Because I, I think, and I, I had done some research in this, but I think we worked for, I think it's on average 84,000 hours of our life. That's a lot. So, you know, filling that with purpose and, and something that you love, I just think there's so much power in that. And I think the thing there is that it links into your why. What's your why? Well, you know, why do we do anything? And when it comes to that working piece, I suppose because I had done what you just described and I had, maybe by luck, I don't know, but I had managed to get myself into a career that is one that, that actually speaks to me. It's, it's, it's a passion. I love it. If I, you know... If I won the lotto, and I've said this for the last 20 plus years, if I win the lotto, I will still do this work. I absolutely will still do this work. Might I do it the number of hours that I work typically? 
maybe not. But will I do it? Yes, for sure, no question. And I think that's because it's linked in with the why. And when I think of my career and I think of all the things that I've said yes to in my career as a psychologist, they have been linked to that very thing you've just spoken to, that, that, that interest, that passion, that drive, that purpose. Somebody has come along and has asked me to do a piece of work with the Wexford Hurling team in 1996, way back again, I'm delving into the memory here. Way back in 1996, I was 27, about to turn 28, and I was asked to do this work with the county team and we went on to win the All-Ireland that year. And it was incredible. But that was just a, it was a heart decision, not a head decision. And many years later, I think it was maybe 2004, I think it was around Today FM Radio came to me. And they had a listener who had done her driving test, I think it was about six times. She was about to sit it for the seventh time. And Ray Darcy, <laughs> it was the Ray Darcy show. And Ray was amazing. He said, look, this is not a driving issue. This is a psychology issue. There's something going on in her emotional or cognitive state that is blocking her with the driving test. We need somebody who understands that performance psychology. I was the psychologist for the Irish Olympic team for the 2004 Olympic Games in, in Athens. And so when Today FM went to some of the Olympic people to get a referral and recommendation for this, they recommended me. I did some work with this girl. She was wonderful. She passed her driving test. And then they asked me back to do it more and more. And eventually, 2011, they asked me if I would do the Agony Ant slot on the show. And again, I said yes. And every one of those decisions was a heart decision rather than a head decision because I, I cared about the sports team and I wanted to be able to help them. I cared about the idea of getting psychology out to a wider audience and I wanted to do that. So I think that why that passion that that actual love for it for me has been a thread the whole way through my career yeah and uh, yeah this it's, it's so 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 powerful um and even you mentioned there like sport you mentioned agony and um you, you work in corporate you work in mental health like i take it like you're there's not really a typical day in the in the work of Neve Fitzpatrick then a, a, quite a lot of variety to it yeah, and how it ha tends to work is that I tend to block the days. So I would have a lot of referrals from maybe GPs or pharmacists or physios, people within the health sort of area. And they might be referrals around anxiety, depression, issues around confidence. Um, and so I would see individual clients on that basis. So I could have a typical day. I might start at 10 in the morning. And throughout the course of that day, I finish at nine at night, and I'd see maybe eight times throughout that day. Spaced well, lots of space for me in between, maybe a good 15-minute break in between to just let me, you know, settle the mind from that last client, clear, maybe go outside to the garden and have a little walk around, you know, enough time for lunch, enough time for dinner. And so I might do, say, two days like that in a row, then my third day my Wednesday I could be out with um, a company in doing some training in a company so I go to their venue we might have a group that we're doing some work around team building or um, you know managing pressure those kind of things so it's a very different space than those previous two days this is me involved in in within their team within their environment and then I might go back to clients maybe Thursday 
depends on the day. Sometimes I could have the Friday off if it's been a sort of a busy sort of full-on weekend. I know, for example, that I might be working with a squad on a Saturday. So or it could be a Friday evening. I might travel to a county team. You know, usually I get county teams that are at the far side of the country or <laughs> the far end of the country to me. So I could travel down to a team. You know, we might, I might watch them train we have a bit of a team talker group session after the training session and stay over maybe that night. The next day I might start doing some individual sessions with those players. And I'm saying players because a lot of the, the work I do, not all, but a lot tends to be in that GAA space. I do work with and have worked with a lot of athletes from other sports and elite athletes and Olympic athletes over the years. But the, for some reason, I'm like a bad penny. I keep turning up again in the GAA space. So that Saturday might look like, you know, seeing groups of players throughout that day or individual players throughout that day. And then I'm not doing the Adam Yant anymore on Today FM. There was just, it was time just to, to pause that and to do something different. And so, but what I might have done before is stay overnight on that Saturday night, get up the next morning, drive back to Dublin, and then go on air on Today FM and where a listener might have had an issue around their own mental health or somebody else's mental health or um, a connection or a relationship issue that they just wanted a little bit of a steer on. And, and that's how my life looks. And I will mix up all that kind of work with, you know, making sure I get two days off in a row, wherever I can, wherever I need to, um, most weeks if I can. But there are some weeks that would look like the one I've just described where, you know, it might be one day off in the middle of the week and I mightn't get another day off then till the Sunday. I really, really work hard not to do that. But as somebody who's self-employed, that's a trap you can find yourself falling into. You don't know when the work is coming in. So you say yes to it when it does come in. As I got older and wiser, <laughs> I now trust myself and I organize my week and I take those breaks and I look after myself. But there were certainly times in my early days where I didn't do that. Yeah, that's quite a career um, when you just you break it down like that. Um, from your career, like what working in psychology, what have you learned from it? I've learned that people are amazing. I've learned that we're so... At the same time, we're so complex, but we're also so simple. And, you know, the, the need to be good enough and the need to be liked or loved is there within us all. And the outside world doesn't always see that. So we see, we see what we present to the world and we see what others present to the world. But what they present, what we present to the world, isn't all we are, you know. And so, so often what I find with people is that we compare. People compare a lot and, and, they, and they think, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as X or as Y. And X or Y is doing fine through life and I'm not. So it could be maybe, say, a young mum. And it, it might be a young dad too, but I'm thinking my own experience in, in, with clients and often it's a young mum will say, you know, my friends are okay with their babies. I'm not. I'm, I'm making a mess of this motherhood thing. I'm not okay. Or it could be an athlete who will say, well, it's okay for Bob when we have a bad day or a bad, you know, game, but it just doesn't go our way. 
well, he's fine with it. It doesn't dent his confidence. But you see, because I'm working my way through individual sessions with the whole panel, Bob comes into me. Bob is gutted with that day, with his performance. Bob is kicking himself for not doing what he knew he needed to do or he was trained to do or prepared to do on that day. But what happens is, is, you know, maybe Bob is engaging really well with the psychological aspects and the work we're doing. So Bob is working his way through his, his you know, maybe less pleasant emotional <laughs> feelings around that game. And so then what his teammates see is this maybe player who's confident and who's resilient and who bounces back and who feels sort of solid, but they don't see the work that has gone on with Bob to get to that place. And that's what I mean about how in some ways we're so simple because we all have those worries about being good enough. We all have those worries about being loved or liked, but we're complex in that what we do about that is different. You know, some people will say, like I did when I was a teenage years, well, it's just me, I'm just no good at this sport thing, you know. Whereas other people will say, well, I'm not really getting where I want to get in this sport thing. Who might know what I could do about that? Where could I go to get some advice or guidance on it? You know, that's definitely one thing that psychology has taught me is that we're so simple, we're so similar, but we're also so complex and there's so many layers to us. And I think also it's taught me, it's taught me the reach of human spirit. You know, when I see athletes, for example, elite athletes who, you know, will come back from injury again and again, who will put themselves out there, you know, in the sports field, in the arena to be judged week upon week they have newspapers who make comments about them they have fans who or supporters i should say who you know feel free to speak about them in whatever way they like professionally or personally and they put themselves out there again and again and again and yes it's part of the game but i watch them and i and i watch how they handle that and i help them handle that i suppose and i see what it's like, the, the, the reach of them being able to say, I will take all this criticism. I will, I will take all these people who believe that me as an individual or us as a team, we can't do it. But I will actually listen to me or we will listen to us because we believe as a team we can do it or I believe as an individual I can do it. And it's incredible to see how we can do that. So there, I mean, you, you asked me that question, what has psychology taught you? If you gave me a week, I'd probably finish answering that. But there are the two answers first that come into my mind. The, the, simply, the simplicity of us, the complexity of us, but also the incredible capacity and reach we have as human beings to just keep going after what we believe that we can do. It's amazing. Neve, I think as well, or like, you know, to understand others, you you very much need to understand yourself first and foremost. What, 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 what are the, you know... What, what are the core values that, that you display in your life that then I suppose you bring into your work? For me, I'm very much around live and let live. I remember recently somebody, going back a few months, somebody put on Twitter uh, and they said, in four words, give your philosophy for life. And that was mine, live and let live. And, uh, and I think the emphasis needs to be on both. So live. 
don't exist. Don't, don't, don't sit and watch life. Don't tread carefully around it. Don't hesitate. Jump in, do it. You know, I think what happens is we have this sense that there's a right and wrong in life and there's a right and wrong way in life. And so often, you know, clients will say to me, will talk to me about, you know, but what if I make the wrong decision? Well, how do you know there's a wrong decision? Who says the wrong decision? Isn't there just a decision? And then when you see where that decision takes you, well, then you might decide, no, this isn't where I actually wanted to be. Let me go somewhere else. And so there's a sense of right or wrong. And so that can hold us back. Whereas I think sometimes what we need to do is to be okay to fail, to say, I'm going to try something. If this thing does not work out and I don't end up where I want to be as a result of that, well, what did I learn? What do I know now that I didn't know before? What do I know about me? What do I know about life? What do I know about others? What has that experience felt like for me? And it's that willingness and that curiosity around and the willingness to engage in, I suppose, the parts of life that we might feel are less pleasant, which is that sense of, in air quotes, failure. You know, did you really fail or did you just try something and it just didn't work, but it got you somewhere else? Well, then the expression I used with people is to say, you know, think about if that it doesn't have to be a full stop in your life. Can that not be a comma in your life? So, so that live bit is a, is a really key bit for me. So live your life. Don't be afraid of failure. Um, think about learning from it. Thinking about growing from it. Thinking about developing from it. Get in and live your life. But then that second bit, it's just as important. Let live. So, you know, this thing on Twitter, for example, of if I put a tweet up and say, I, I like bananas, well, then I'm going to get a whole heap of people saying, you've left out oranges. What about apples? And how dare you? <laughs> you know, go away. If I like bananas, I like bananas. Leave me off to like bananas. And I, I think because we have a voice and because social media gives us um, a place for that voice, so many people think that it's their job to hunt on critique other people's choices in life. Let them live. Let them make their choices. Let them, obviously, let me just, to be clear on this, there are people who need to be called out. There are behaviors that need to be called out for sure. So that's not what I'm talking about here. But otherwise, stand back and let others live their life. So live and let live would be a big philosophy for me that I would bring into life, uh, bring in from life, if you like, into my work. Um, so, you know, as a psychologist, obviously, you know, my job is to, without judgment, you know, help somebody look at what's going on in their own life. And so, you know, I suppose we're trained in the let live part in that there's no judgment, there's no critique really of, of people. That's not what I'm about in my work. But I... I really do, in my professional life, I do live by that. I don't have a sense of that, you know, this is a right behavior or this is a wrong behavior. I tend to, so I find a lot of people who come to me as a psychologist will, will, will learn themselves to be gentler and kinder and nicer and more compassionate, more accepting of themselves because actually that's what they see from me. 
when they think of and talk about their problems, what they're met with, which is what we need to do as psychologists, what they're met with is kindness and understanding and acceptance and compassion. Maybe, yes, then we do need to work on change for sure, but they're met with that first. And that helps them learn to do that for themselves. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, I want to bring sort of two points uh, that you had brought previously and, and mesh them together. Um, I suppose it was the, the, the comparison of ourselves to others and then the idea of social media. Have you seen as time has evolved and you know society has um, became more people living their lives online, um, that sort of idea of yeah. what we're Instagram, Twitter, you, you've mentioned there. Has that change in the dominance of social media coming in? Has, have you seen that having the direct influence on people in terms of behaviors and the, the psychology behind humans? Like, because you know, I would do, I mentioned a lot of work in schools, and one of the things when you talk around, because I was a light bulb went off in my head there when you were talking around this idea of comparing ourselves to others, and in particular, you would see this within post primary schools where this idea of Instagram where, you know, people are putting almost like a highlight reel of their life up. And whenever other people maybe are feeling down and are not, not great about themselves, they're going on social media and seeing someone else when they're at their best and almost like will comparing themselves when they're at their lowest to someone else when they're at their best. So yeah, how, how, I suppose what I'm trying to get around is have you seen social media having an influence and in how uh, it shaped, I suppose, modern day psychology? I think what happens is social media gives us um, it gives us an um, it gives us a greater media awareness of what other people are doing. It gives us a window, a shop window through which we can look and we can browse and we can see others in a way that we mightn't have had before. And there's an expression that says, "Don't compare your insides to somebody else's outsides." So. That's what's really happening is we're looking in that shop window and we're seeing that beautiful um, expression you use there spot on. We're seeing that highlight reel from others. But we don't see all the outtakes. We don't see all the stumbles along the way. So we look at that highlight reel and we think that's all there is. And because we have social media on our phones, which are with us, pretty much all of the time we not only have that insight and that awareness and that view into other people's lives but we have it 24 7 if we want so it's a rolling reminder of what and, and um, look into what other people are doing and that in itself is not a, an issue i mean uh, we need balance in our life so for anybody do we need to be you know constantly looking at feeds on other people's social media pages. No, absolutely not. We need, to, we need to go out and live our own lives. But that in itself, being able to look at other people's lives isn't the issue. The issue is what do we do with that information when we see it? So there was a brilliant, I just love this, a brilliant little picture I saw on Twitter one day and it was, um, the caption was something around, um, you know, online life and real life and it was a photo or an image of an apple and the apple was faced into a mirror and the apple looked just beautiful almost like the apple from snow white and seven dwarfs you know that juicy apple that tempted snow white and that's what you saw in the mirror 
but we could see the back of the apple and it had a bite out of it and it was all um, oxidized around the edges. But what all you could see in the mirror was this juicy, crisp, fresh, beautiful apple. And that's really what it is. is what do we say about the stuff that we see online? Do we say, that's their life, that's how they are? Or do we say, that's a snapshot of a moment that they have presented to us right now? What do we say? So you're really bringing in there the issue around attribution theory. What do we attribute um, that result to or, or that you know, presentation to? Do we say that that's their life? And then do we start looking inwards and say, oh my gosh, but what's my life like? I remember being at the, um, one of the Olympic Games. So I've done um, three Olympic Games with the Irish uh, team at this stage. So Athens 2004, Beijing 2008, and London 2012. And I would have been the HQ psychologist for the Irish team at those games. And what happens there is, you know, each, there's about 10,000 athletes in the Olympic Village. Each country brings with it a team, a core team of so medic team, sports science team, and we are there to, if you like, guide and just mind and manage those athletes for the period of the training camp before the games and then to the Olympic Games. So incredible experience, and I feel utterly privileged to have had that in my life, in my career. It's just immense. You get to do some amazing things. And I remember in one of the games going into the dining hall. Now, this dining hall in Olympic Village seats, I want to say it could be maybe 5,000 people or something. So just think of this huge, think of the biggest, almost marquee tent type space you've ever seen and multiply that by many more. And you see it with you know, you see these big long trestle tables and, and, and athletes all in their countries in their gear and their colors and it's this array of colors and flags and bunting and it's just beautiful it's amazing but i remember sitting in one with the irish team in one of the um dining halls one year one of the games and i think nadal rafa nadal came in to the um dining hall and there was this ripple as it sort of people nudged each other to say oh look he's here and there was applause and yeah it was just amazing but i watched them a lot of the athletes afterwards. So when he goes to take his place and sit down, you can nearly see athletes saying, what is he eating? Is he eating Weetabix? If he's eating Weetabix, I need to be eating Weetabix. You know, there was just this sense of that, because that's what we do. We look at other people, and especially people that we perceive to have been successful, and we say, you know, how do I compare to that? If it, and there, there's an assumption that brings me back again to the right or wrong bit earlier. There's this sense of, well, there's only one way to be successful. And so if that person's successful, I need to do what they're doing. Do you? No, you don't. That's their way to have been successful. And so I think there's a lot there. I can't remember what your question was now, but I think there's a lot there really around that comparison bit. And, and it's like, what do we do when we see other people? What do we say to ourselves? What's the story we tell ourselves in our heads when we're seeing somebody else in a sporting context or in a life context? And what are we saying about them and what they're presenting in the social media space? I remember your question now and social media space. But what are we saying about ourselves in that space too? Um, and so I think for me, the, the, the key thing there is that bit of our intervention is the wrong word, but our, it's what we do 
when we're looking at that social media world. I don't think it in itself has to be a bad thing. I think it's how we interact with it that that's the thing that makes the difference. Yeah, I suppose it's like anything in life. It's it's your interpretation of it that carries the the power. And um, funny you mentioned about Nadal there. <clears throat> it brings back memories of talking to a friend of mine who. He plays with a really successful GA team. They would have been winning county championships after county championships. And I remember his take on it. He was saying, you know, because they do things differently as well. But but uh, that team, and I think part of it is just to keep an intrigue. And you know, others are all for other teams. I remember him saying, do you know, if we if we win a championship and we uh, end up, uh, you know, with pink, pink collars and pink cufflinks around their, their sleeves, you can guarantee next year there'll be three or four teams doing the same thing. And that's why we always stay one step ahead of the game. I just thought that was, uh, that was really interesting. Yeah, spot on. And you see, you know, it, again, if you think back in sport, often athletes would talk about having, you know, their lucky red socks. You know, I need my lucky red socks to, to perform. And of course, in the psychology space, what you're not looking to do is to, with a vice-like grip, um, wrench those lucky red socks from a player or an athlete. That's not what you're about. And it's okay for them to have them if they want. But for me, what I'm certainly about is helping them to widen the lens and helping them to look accurately at what actually are the things that are contributing to you delivering on that field of play. So what are the things that you are doing on a daily basis consistently around your training, around your rest time, around your recovery, around your, you know, maybe your physio work, your medical work, your nutrition, your psychology. Um, what's, what are the things around your life? How are you organizing your life? How are you organizing your working life compared to your sports life and how are they mixing in? What about your friendships? What about your relationships? What about how you manage your worry, your maybe worries about money or you know housing or any of those kind of things? What are you doing on a daily basis in each of those and some of the other areas of your life that are allowing you to get to that training field and get the best out of yourself and then in time get to the competitive field and get the best out of yourself? I, I gently, nicely, kindly, but very firmly make sure that in my conversations with them, we come back to that space. So the, the player, the athlete is understanding very clearly that piece around the influence, the control that they have over their performance, as opposed to the inverted commas, Lucky socks. Yeah, um, funny again. You're you're, you're talking. Their minds going in other directions. I um, support the Ulster Rugby Academy and the sports psychology. I mean, I've been doing it for five seasons now. But um, and quite recently, I had a conversation with a player. I was around something similar, but it was around sort of instilling. Like I, I compared it almost compared. You know, to you were saying there, it's almost like your t- a table and different strands of the table been you know, a leg each, you know, or four legs and what are the important parts of your life? And if you're not meeting the needs of that part of your life, your table's less stable. So I think, you know, uh, just that whenever you were talking there, that's sort of the comparison, the, the thought I was having in my head. And I even try to look at it now in terms of obviously COVID-19 times where we're sort of obviously everyone's self-isolating now and trying to establish the sort of um, balance to my day and that I try to now be thinking, Right, what are the important elements within my life 
what are the important legs to my table and each day try and within reason but to be honoring each of those legs so if it's maybe if it's my work if it's social or social communication uh, obviously from social distance um you know relaxing time all those things so that, that's kind of the way i've looked even that at, at what you were saying there just in a, in a different lens around my own life now trying to keep balance in difficult times uh, which i think we're going to come on to now as well neve because you had mentioned around mental health um like what what are the because i know there's people listening to this that that uh, people have reached out to me who maybe were, have, have struggled with their mental health. Like what, what I suppose firstly are the basics we can be doing to look after our own mental health? And then what advice would you be giving to people who maybe are struggling with their mental health? And I suppose I'll, I'll fire a third question on that. Um, what advice would you be giving to people maybe who have loved ones who are struggling with their mental health or mental health? So I think mental health for starters is a huge, um, it's a huge phrase. Um, it, you know, it encompasses so much. Um, but I think in terms of the basics, your analogy there of the table and about, you know, wanting to keep that table stable is wonderful. It's just really, really good. And, it, and it's that concept of, you know, pillars or legs that hold us up. And it's really thinking about the things that are, we know that are really good for our mental health. And so that would be things around sleep. Um, another leg of the table there is going to be, you know, things around, say, nutrition and hydration, um, exercise, social connection, you know, all of those kind of things. And then but the, we add in, you know, I'm going to make this table, it's much more than a four leg. Well, you know, we're going to add legs as we need it. But it's thinking about what are the basics. And what I often sort of think of is, you know, to look after your body so that your body can look after you. So if you start there, for example, if you're looking at, it's very difficult for somebody to feel well mentally, emotionally, cognitively, if they are completely sleep deprived, for example, just taking that. So it's, so it's understanding that you need to look at those basic pillars around sleep, nutrition, hydration, movement, fresh air, social connection. If you were to take a couple of quick pillars, it's, it's maybe those pillars. And, you know, my feeling on a lot of things around the mental health, is what I notice is that what people do without meaning to, so this is a judge, this is an observation, not a judgment, but what they do is they layer. So somebody might say, um, you know, I'm feeling anxious. I'm not talking about COVID-19 times now. I'm just talking about just general times. So somebody might say, so I'm feeling really anxious at the moment. I just, I'm, you know, I'm not getting to sleep at night. I'm stressed all the time. I'm hurrying and rushing in my life. I feel under pressure. But then what happens is they come in with this, what is wrong with me? And if the, that's where we go with the compare, comparison thing, but they say others aren't like this. I look at my family and they seem fine, but I'm stressed out of my head. What is wrong with me? So they're layering, but I'm realizing if they're layering something on top of something else. So instead of, I say to them, are you just not happy with one problem? Would you just not be happy with being anxious, with being, feeling anxious? What are we doing putting shame on top of, or guilt or whatever it is on top of anxiety. So, so, so the first bit for me around the mental health piece, I suppose, is to, is to actually understand that how we feel is how we feel is how we feel. And it's okay to feel that. 
and to start with that place, to, to, to do a bit of work to start with that place where you can actually accept what I call the ugly feelings. So when we feel anxious, when we feel maybe depressed, when we feel angry, resentful, you know, any of those kind of things that are going on with this distress, they're so unpleasant. They're just they're awful things to feel. They're just loss, grief, anything. They're just so unpleasant. And so, you know, often what we do is we don't like them. We back away from them or we judge them by, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I feeling this? But when you can get to the place where you can say, I am feeling anxious or I am depressed or feeling depressed. And when you can do that and start from that place, not with judgment, but with acceptance and with understanding. And the way I really maybe go through that with clients is I get them to think of in a car when they sit in a car. Most of us aren't in these days really sitting in cars too much. <clears throat> because we're staying at home but when you sit in your car there's a dashboard in the car and sometimes the little light will come on to say well you need a bit of fuel or you need some more windscreen washer fluid and you know that light there's nothing right or wrong with it that light is an indicator that something needs your attention so one of the places i start with the clients is think about so if this anxiety had a message for you, or if this depression had a message for you, what might it be saying? What might it be telling you? What is it, what is it indicating that we need to you know, give more attention to? You and I in this therapy space need to give more attention to. And to start to gently shape it a little bit differently in their head around it. And that mental health space, that's a starting place I think you need to go. And the other thing there is I'll often find people who come in and you know, they might feel quite distressed or quite stressed, I should say. And when, when somebody comes in to me first, I ask about, you know, sort of their working life, if they're working or if they're studying or if they're out of work, just to see what's going on in that space. And then I do a little bit of work around finding out about their family space um, and their connection space. Who are the people in their life they care about? And um, talking about friends. So I'm really what I'm doing is I'm building a picture of their life. So by the time they get to a point where they say to me, I am so anxious, I'm not sleeping at night, I'm you know, really you know, feeling shame about that, I'm really disgusted with myself for feeling that, but I've been able to see through the previous 15 minutes of them talking that this is somebody who has an awful lot going on in their life. And they have demand after demand after demand after demand on themselves. So I say to them, would you actually feel like almost to me, as I hear you, is it's as if you're a tennis player, but instead of having another player at the other end of the court, you have a ball machine, and that ball machine is firing. One thing, so you have young children, you have demanding job, you have a two-hour commute, you have, you know, maybe financial issues and stuff. Is that anxiety maybe okay in that instance? Is it maybe saying that something needs to change on a practical level in your life. And so the mental health piece for me is about maybe in some ways starting to normalize and understand the feelings first, and then to look to see how do we sift our way, work our way through them. But when we get that first piece right, I can actually see the client drop the shoulders and take a breath and say, oh my gosh, it's okay. Because they then have begun to realize that they're not awful or they're not stupid or they're not weak, but that they're human 
and that this is okay. And, 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 and a line that's wonderful that people love is the Viktor Frankl line of an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. Love it. Okay, so an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. So if you find yourself in your life, and it might be your life life, or it might be your sporting life, and if there's a lot going on, if you have demands and pushes and squeezes on you, things that are, are stretching you out of shape, well, then isn't it okay to feel distressed by that or stressed by that? And if that becomes cumulative over time, and that brings you to a place where there's a loss of hope, and there's maybe a depression in there. Isn't that understandable? Isn't that okay? Because that, you know, it's really about understanding that for a lot of people, not everybody, not all of the time, I understand. But certainly for a lot of people, the issues that we might find around mental health are linked very much to, you know, what's going on in our actual world linked and connected in with what's going on in our emotional and cognitive world. And it doesn't mean that, you know, it's almost like, you know, you know, do you remember, let's say, if you're, I don't even know where you'd be, you'd say I'm somewhere and I can see maybe a stamp, you know, like a red stamp that says reject or fail. You know, I think that's as human beings, what we often do is we, we stamp that on our own foreheads. But when somebody can understand that their emotions are valid, and normal and understandable. Yes, we want to move them from that place of anxiety or depression or whatever it is, of course. But start by understanding that it's okay and understandable to be there in the first place. And it doesn't mean that you are in life's terms or sports terms a reject or a fail. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. So much power in that. Um, and Neve, then what about, you know, if, if say there is someone who's got uh, a family member or whatever who maybe is struggling what can they be doing you know just in their their day-to-day -day living that could, su could support them in the best possible way i think what you have to do here is figure out what is it that the person needs now and so i suppose i want to be careful here because that's such a there's so many it's a wide topic and there's so many different scenarios um, within that. So I want to be careful in that regard, but you know, what somebody needs and what somebody reports them needing themselves and maybe what they need medically or psychologically might be two different things. But you know, let's say we're talking about somebody sticking with the anxiety piece. If you're somebody in a home, in a family home, where there is a family member who is really struggling with that anxiety piece, um, you know, for me, that's very much about you have two ears and one mouth, and I want you to use them in that ratio. So, and you two eyes too, so use them. So, so look and see what's going on with your 14-year-old, 18-year-old, 32-year-old, 65-year-old who is experiencing anxiety. What is going on with them? Look, you know, what are you seeing with them? And Whenever you see anything, for example, that might be a little window of invitation for an interaction between the two of you around this, I want you to look out, use your ears, use your eyes, and look out for that window, that opportunity for invitation. So it might be that somebody says 
something that will give you an indication that they're at a point where they want things to change, they're ready for things to change, they would like things to change. And then it's not about rushing in, it's not about doing what most of us would want to do, which is rush in on the white horse and charge in and fix it all. It's about saying, hey, sure, will we have a chat about it? Would you like to talk about it? Tell me more about that. You know, that kind of thing. So you're asking one or two little questions like that. Tell me more about that. Would you like to chat about it a little bit? You're saying a couple of things that is inviting back, inviting back that conversation to open. And so the big thing on how do you help people who within your circle of friends or family or maybe teammates in a sporting situation have issues around anxiety or depression or anything like that, you don't barge in. You, you watch, you wait, you look, you see, you notice, and then you gently invite and you see are they open to a conversation around it with you. Or you might, it depends what the relationship is like, you might just say to them, whatever you need, I'm here. Or, you know, you, you, you might actually go that, that directly about, for some people that will work and that's all they need to know. But even if you say, you know, I'm not alone, you're not alone, I, I, you're, I'm here with you. There's an expression actually that, um, I was sent this to do with loss. So, so my sister died um, three years ago in an accident overnight. And um, somebody sent me um, a card and in the card was a phrase that I believe is attributed to, um, often wrongly attributed to Alice in Wonderland, in Wonderland C.S. Lewis. Um, and it's when you cannot look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. And that really touched me. Um, my sister was Captain Dara Fitzpatrick and she was uh, one of the four crew of Rescue 116 and they lost their lives on March the 14th, 2017. And it was actually Dara's really good friend, Sarah Hegarty from Waterford, and she sent me this in a card. And I think it was the fact that it came from Sarah and that it was such a beautiful idea that if you cannot look on the bright side, which of course you can't in the face of such loss, if you cannot look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. And I think there's something there around the mental health space when you're helping others in that. Sometimes they don't need people to fix them. They might have a GP, they might have a psychologist, they might have, you know, other friends. If you're a family member, find out what they need first. Maybe they just need you to hear them. Maybe they just need you to sit with them in the dark. You know, does that make any sense? Hundred percent. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing these. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's. I think sometimes, sometimes that mix of your professional life and your personal life is amazing. Um, and I think, you know, as in this in these last three years, it's been a tough three years. You know, Sarah died. Traumatic loss, completely traumatic loss. And um, I literally went to bed one night. I had four siblings and I woke up the next morning and one of those siblings was missing. So Dara was a, the, the rescue woman's sixth uh, Irish Coast Guard helicopter and they had gone out on a rescue mission on, Tuesday, on Monday the 13th of March in the night and they crashed that night and lost their lives. 
And the next morning we found out that Dara was missing. And it was six hours later before we would find out that she had lost her life. And I think after that, my marriage ended around the same time. And life, I nearly had to take every psychological skill I ever had um, into my own life and begin to apply it. Not that I hadn't applied it before. I think as a psychologist, when you work with, whether it's athletes or people from the rest of the population, you need to walk the walk. So they need to come in and they need to see that you are okay with your own emotions, the ugly ones and the nice ones. They need to see that you can navigate your way through emotional states. And so I suppose I've always done that. But I have to do this to a different level at this point in time in my own life. And when it comes to that mental health piece and the question you're asking me about the mental health piece, you know, that's another thing to, to say that's really important for those maybe of issues with their own mental health, but also people who um, maybe have somebody in their family who has an issue with mental health is there is a time when we often have to ask for help. And so certainly I did that just because I was a psychologist and I was dealing with loss. It didn't mean that I was going to be able to deal with it in myself. So, you know, I went to see, and I still go to see a psychologist around the, tra- the trauma of that loss and the grief and the distress and the anger and the rage and all of the other things that have come with that. And that's okay. And so it may be if you're watching a family member in distress, that in the beginning you see what did they need and you see maybe there's a space for you to sit with them in the dark but that you're also aware that there may also be a, a time when what they do need is that, you know, if it's a GP visit, if it's a psychological visit or whatever it is, and it's just what you as a family member could do is you could go and research some of those. You're not overstepping boundaries now. You're doing this carefully and gently and respectfully. You might do a little bit of work to see, for example, who in our area could be good if my son, daughter, husband, wife, whatever, feels that they're ready at some point to go and seek some professional help. Who might be there? Who is good? Who's qualified? Who's recommended? Who's experienced in this space? You could be doing little bits of work like that in the background. That's another thing that you can be doing for them. Um, I don't really know how I, to, how I got to that place in the conversation. Yeah. Hey, thanks very much for that. That's, there's, I think there's so much power in that, and I think our, our listeners can will take a lot from that. And I, I really, really like that. An abnormal reaction to abnormal circumstances is normal. That's An abnormal reaction, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. Normal behavior. Brilliant. Yourself. Really, yeah, I love, yeah. A, I love a powerful quote. And the Alice in Wonderland uh, as well it's it's just i think there's something about quotes that just resonates with me and strikes power um neve i suppose it just to, to, suppose just before we wrap up we're obviously living now in in sort of different times with um <laughs> almost the, the world having to take a pause um with uh, covid19 like what do you see now in this new world as uh, from a psychological perspective what are the challenges that uh, we're going to be faced with i think are challenges on many different layers and levels. So if, if you look at what we're dealing with, we have a situation that's unprecedented. Um, you know, most of us living now have not lived through anything that is like this. There are some 
comparison somewhere. You know, we, if you see obviously, you know, polio years ago, TB years ago, there were places and times where, you know, people were isolated and shut down and movement and that, but, but not to this degree and not to this scale. And from, from, I'm 51, so certainly in my lifetime, I've never known anything like this at all. So if you think of that bit that we have no frame of reference, we have no direct experience of it, it's so frightening. And it's also, I think, something that's changing so much. You know, it's a time of great change. It's a time of great uncertainty. And we really, we, we don't know what we're dealing with in some ways. I'm talking about sort of the lay person now. The, I'm not talking about the medics or the scientists or the immunologists. I'm talking about the rest of us here. We don't really know what we're dealing with. Um, it's all new. It's unknown. It's unprecedented. We don't have a frame of reference. We, it's not like we can say, well, when this happened, you know, 10 years ago, here's how we did it type of thing. So from a psychological perspective, and actually, if you add in the bit that there isn't a time frame and a date frame and a date stamp on this. So if they said to us, for example, so your lives are going to be like this and this pandemic will be with us until, you know, X month, you know, at a certain time. Well, then we would say, right, we will hold on and we will be okay. But we have no date stamp on this. So, we, so that adds the limbo. And I think because of all that, we have so much going on emotionally. And so some people, for instance, will, will go straight into maybe a pragmatic sort of space around it and just say, well, it is what it is. I'm going to deal with it. Others will feel anxious, overwhelmed, fearful, lonely, depressed, uh, some people actually are going to feel um, relieved because it's, they're saying, well, I've been practicing for this my whole life because I struggle around people and I struggle around connections. And now I can be on my own or around less people and I can feel less bad about that. So there's that reaction too. And so if, if the psychological thing really, I would say, is a huge mix and mishmash of and different things that are going on with this. And then there's the level of worry. So there's maybe worry about your own physical health, about your loved one's physical health, medical health, about same about your mental health. There are concerns around the economy, um, you know, mortgages. There's concerns around if people have children. So when your children are home, well, are they going to be okay if they're out of school for an extended period of time? And what if it's a child who's a single, if it's a single child family and that child is not seeing another child for the last four or five weeks? And how is that going to impact? There's issues around then the stress of all these people, these families. Maybe it's a shared house. Maybe it's a family. And instead of everybody getting up in the morning and going off to the four corners of the city to live their life and do their day's work and come back, now, boom, they're in this house together all the time, except for this time maybe going out to do some exercise or, or food show. And so how do you work when you're supposed to be working from home and you believe that your organization wants the same standard or a decent standard or a high standard of work from you, but now you have to do this with a three-year-old looking for strawberries from you. You know, how do you handle that? And as is it being on top of each other? So there's a, I haven't even gone near it. There's a whole host of worries around it. And then you get to the huge worries around, but what if we become Italy? What if, what if a relative of any of ours is going to end up in a hospital on their own, isolated, dying, and we can't get near them? What if the parents, I know I haven't seen my parents now 
um, except, you know, through a, through a gate, socially and physically, I should say, physically distant through a gate to mine them, to cocoon them. They're in the mid seventies and, and, and we need them. And so we've stayed away from them. I have a, a five-year-old nephew and I'm, I'm a guardian to him with my sisters. And so, you know, early on, we, we, we've kept them all apart. And so even Dara's anniversary on the 14th of March, we were separate visits to the grave and it was no hugs and there was no mass and there was nothing to acknowledge it. And you're just all separate. And, and so there's this worry that, well, you know, what if one of us gets us now? And what if they die? What if we die? And what, and what if you can't see them and get to them? And so a, we have to name it. There's all those big worries are there. Of course, mentally, what we do is you have to, how do we handle this situation psychologically? You have to stay in the present. You have to deal with the facts. The first thing I say to people is find yourself one or two good, solid, credible sources of information around this. So wherever you are in the world, you know, whatever source is the most reputable, just find one or two, but just check it once or twice a day. You don't need the rolling sort of feed with it. And then when you know what, you know, the directives are from a safety perspective and a health perspective, you follow them. You, you follow them, all the directives, all, all the time, consistently. And you keep your mind in the present. You don't let your mind run down that rabbit hole. So I'm aware that I would have a concern that I might not ever hug my parents again if one of them got it. But do I sit with that? Do I let that indulge myself without running around my head? No, absolutely not. I leave that over there and I stay in the present, which is FaceTiming them and dropping the groceries to their gate and talking to them through the gate and saying, I'm so grateful this is what we have. Um, you do pieces around if you're in a house together with a load of people, whether it's a family or a shared house. So what you do there is you have conversations around what's working for us, what needs work. You know, maybe it might be a weekly chat where you, you, everybody gets a voice and has an equal voice and saying, you know, I'd actually love a little bit more space or I'd love a little bit more together time, whatever it is. So it's connecting in and saying, we expect, expect there will be tension in this household because this is a ridiculous situation. We're all shoved together. But let's talk through that tension. We expect it. Let's talk through it. Let's understand we're on the same team. Then let's find the way to find our way through it. Um, mentally, other things are things around looking and seeing there's always something we can do. So if you think of the worst, the most horrific you know, one of the most horrific parts about this, besides obviously what our frontline health, retail, rescue services are all having to contend with at this time, which is just horrific. Um, but the other thing that's horrific is the families, say, for instance, who have lost a loved one where somebody has died and they are unable to be with them, but they're unable maybe to have the funeral for that person afterwards. What we're noticing is, People are coming out and standing on their doorsteps and, you know, the heads bowed as the hearse goes by or they're lining the route maybe from the town um, as the family pass. Maybe it's a family of five or ten people or the only people allowed there. Maybe there's no one allowed there. But there's always something we can do. And if all we can do to pay respects to the dead and to show support to the bereaved 
is to stand on our doorstep and bow our heads as a hearse goes by, then we must do that. So I think another psychological piece there is around seeing what can we do? What are the things we can't do, even in the face of the things that we can't? And, and psychologically, that's where I would go. And probably the, the, I mean, again, I could sit here for a week and talk to you about the psychology of COVID-19 and things we could do, but I'm conscious you have a time limit for your podcast and your listeners will have their tea to make or whatever. But, but things like, you know, to remember, bizarre as may seem, given what I've just said, that what's really important for our mental health here is, you know, have some memories of things you have done and some plans you're, for what you're going to do and, and allow yourself, if you're going to indulge, allow yourself a little bit of time in your head to do that, to remember, you know, my thing is Ackle, Ackle Island and I was there last May and we were due to be there this May and I have these photos from May of last year and I have these images in my head and I don't care if it's December I don't care if it's February when I get there I'm going to go back and I'm going to stand on the beach in my bare feet and I'm going to feel that sea on my toes and the sand beneath it and I'm going to love it no matter what time of year it is and that's keeping me going and then the other thing there is around laugh if you in your house in your home if you and yourself get a chance to laugh get a chance to just have some frivolous moment in the midst of all this serious awfulness take that moment to laugh because we need the respite of humor and joy and lightheartedness now more than ever that's not an exhaustive list for you of the psychological challenges and some of the things that we can do but it's a start yeah um there's a couple of things you said that i was like find a way to find a way through it like because ultimately it is going to end uh and even when you were, you were talking, you made reference to Viktor Frankl before. Um, I think that was the, the strategy that he almost employed with um, those people that, in those, the concentration camps, which his book his book's about. It's a great book, Man's Search for Meaning. But I think his idea was that in those people to be instilled in the sense of hope that this is what's in the other end, sort of give people that sense of meaning of, yeah, so getting through the thing. Uh, with that sense of suppose, optimism, would that be the word? Yeah, I, I, the word I think I would use would be hope. hope. So one of the things I have done um, since Dara died is I've just talked a little bit in different places. You, you mentioned there this, the, some of the talks on YouTube. So there's an organization called Seminar and they run events for youngsters. So Generation Z, 16 to 20 year olds. And I've given talks then before. So you go into this um, arena and there's a thousand 16 to 20 year olds looking at you. Quite interesting. But anyway, but my last talk actually, funny enough, was um, October 2019. And my talk was called What's at the Other Side of Awful? And that's what you've just described there. What, what I really wanted to talk about was how you know, and I was talking about the other side of awful, not of grief, because I believe that we will I will grieve my sister till the day I take my own last breath. But I mean, navigating the, the horror of her loss and coming to terms with her loss and learning to accept the loss of her life and the loss of her from our lives. And so that's what I meant. And even the loss of my marriage and, and um, coming to terms with that and finding you know, a, way, a way to move on in life from that marriage loss. And I was really talking to them about that, that there is another side of awful. And that, you know, over the last three years when I've been living through this, 
for so long I didn't know that there was another side of Oval, but I always hoped it. I always hoped it because I knew that piece that you referenced there with Victor Frankl was so key that we need to hold that hope. You know, one of the things he talks about, and this is his words, he says, the last of the human freedoms is our ability to choose our own attitude and to choose our own way. And part of choosing our own attitude has got to be around choosing hope because if we don't hope that someday it will be different, someday we will be okay, someday we will find a way, then essentially we will, I believe, cognitively and emotionally, we will shut down. And, and, and certainly what I used to say to myself in those three years, and I am saying now, and I would urge people to say now, you know, some version of this is, I'll be okay, I just don't know what okay looks like yet. So in other words, we're acknowledging that there is, you know, uncertainty in our lives right now. I just don't know what okay looks like yet. How will we all be? How will the world be when we come out the other side of this? We don't know. But when you say to yourself, I'll be okay, you're trusting yourself that somehow you'll find your way through it. And that's the hope piece. For me, it's hope more than optimism with the Victor Frankl piece. And I think if we can hold hope in these times, that's a really powerful thing to do emotionally. Neve, brilliant. Thanks very much. Um, Neve, I'm just going to ask, ask all my guests this. It's, I don't know, I think th- I'll probably have thrown this question on you, but can you finish the line? Success to me is... Making a difference. Neve, thanks very much for your time. I really, really enjoyed that.